as he comes this morning. Good morning, church. Anyone else think that Mr. Finnegan got too much pleasure out of a kid being wrong in their guess? Like, it was a cringe moment, brother. It was just... All right, please turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. As we draw to a close this little mini-series we've been in, um, as was announced earlier, next week we got our friends Ken and Beth Mellinger here with us, which I am also really excited about, and Ken preaching here on Sunday is always great, so we'll be doing that. And then the week after that, just to give you a preview, we'll be back into the book of Matthew and our study through that gospel, and uh, I'm excited to get into that section. It's a section that focuses on Jesus' power and authority, and so we'll look at his power over diseases and his power over demons and his authority over sin and his authority over death because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so that'll be a great section for us to jump into. Uh, Before I turn to the preaching of God's word today, though, I do want to give you an update on last week's uh, collection for the building fund. And it's a joy for me to do this. I'm excited to do it. Uh, Our goal was to raise $70,000 this year for the building fund. And I am happy to report that 56 of you pledged nearly $67,000. So we are just about there. And I've already heard that a few of you uh, hadn't put in your pledges yet. And so I'm assuming once you all finish putting in your pledges, then we will practically be there. And so well done, Covenant of Grace Church. I think that's something we should all be proud of and be so grateful for um, because it's not only representation of our sacrificial giving, um, but it is also a representation of our kingdom-mindedness, that we are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, trusting that he will add to us the things that we need. So thank you for doing that, and I'm excited to see what God does through this. All right, now we are turning to the main event, the study of God's word. I love doing this every week with you all. All right, Philippians chapter one, it's been a rich little little study here. We have looked at the joy of remembering, the joy of interceding, the joy of partnering, the joy of anticipating, and finally today we are looking at the joy of friendship. It's a happy thought that our God wants to be friends with us and that his will for our life is that we would be friends with one another. I mean, of all the things God could ask for us, right? I just want you to have friends in this life. That's my will for you. And that's how I'm going to make you thrive. And that's how I'm going to satisfy your joys, is through friendship. What a wonderful expression of God's goodness and how down to earth he is. I mean, God just gets us. So, the joy of friendship, and to introduce today's question, or to introduce today's sermon, though, <clears throat> I do want to ask you a question. Uh, I'll give you a heads up. It's a rather personal question. Um, it ha- it's potentially offensive to those around you. So while I'm asking this question, you are not allowed to look at other people's as they answer <laughs> or as they respond, especially if you're sitting with your family. Okay. So eyes up here. Have you ever wanted to just get away from everybody in your life? Don't look around, no head nods. 
have you ever wondered that if there would be less problems in your life, if there were less people in your life? Because people come with problems. It's a package deal. People come with problems, and so it's a tempting thought to think, if I could get away from people, I'd have less problems. That's the mindset that the monks had. They thought if they could just draw away from people and live in some sort of solitude and silence, then they would have less problems and they could grow in their godliness. They could grow in holiness. Uh, I have a couple of examples for you here. Saint Irenaeus, um, he believed that God told him, flee, be silent, pray always, for these are the source of sinlessness. You want to grow in godliness, be sinless? All right, get away from everybody, practice silence, and pray always. And so Arrhenius did just this. He left the monastery that he was living at. He moved 32 miles away into the wilderness, made himself a cell where he lived there for three years without any interaction with anyone at all. Whenever he did have to interact with anybody, this is what he would do. He was so committed to practicing silence and not really interacting with people that he would put a stone in his mouth and carry that stone around to remind him, don't speak. Don't knock it till you try it, folks. I mean, you never know, it could help. Uh, some of us need to be a little slower to speak, so maybe that rock idea would help you. Another example is Saint Macarius. He lived such a secluded, he lived a secluded life in a monastery, but uh, that wasn't secluded enough for him, and so what he did was, in his cell in his monastery, he actually dug a secret tunnel out of it, so think Shawshank Redemption, he drew a secret tunnel out of it a half mile away where he dug out in the ground for himself a second cell. Well, if you live in a monastery in a cell, why do you need to have a secret passage out into another cell? Well, here's why. Because if anyone came to his door to visit him, he could sneak away and be in his secluded little place. So when they open the door, oh, he's not here. Such is a man devoted to seclusion. Some people have the idea that if they can get away from people, they would actually help them grow in godliness. <clears throat> Let me give you another example of a man who lived in isolation. Um, his name was Chuck Noland, not Chuck Norris. Chuck Noland. Chuck Nolan was neither a monk nor Chuck, Chuck Norris, but he was a character played by Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway, who did not choose isolation, but had isolation thrust upon him, right? So he lived on a secluded, uninhabited island after his plane crashed in the South Pacific, and he lived all alone and became so starved for community, he became friends with what? Anybody remember? Volleyball. A volleyball, who he appropriately named Wilson. Right? Because he was so starved for fellowship. So, what am I doing with all this? I'm saying this. Monks believed that they could pull away from everybody. Then they could grow in godliness. Because you get away from people and you get away from their problems. One, I, I found a, a monk's or a monastery's website. And they, they said this. A monk who lives in solitude will become free from the bonds on their soul. And will gain many virtues such as peace, humility, love, meekness, comfort. Well, it sounds good, 
But then start thinking about that for a minute, right? How could you not gain peace as a monk if there is no one in your life who has a contrary desire to yours? Of course you're gonna have peace. Well, how can you not gain humility if you're a monk? If you're living by yourself, you are the humblest person you know. The unfortunate consequential truth is that you're also the proudest person that you know. Pulling away from people does not actually help us gain godliness, not if it characterizes our life, and it certainly does not resemble God's design for us or his will for us. In fact, it bears so little resemblance to God's design for us that out of the three examples I gave you, the guy closest to God's purposes is the one who befriended a volleyball. Listen, the Bible's first pages show us our undeniable need for relationships. Several times in the creation story in Genesis 1, we hear the repeated phrase, and God saw it was good, and God saw it was good, and God saw it was good, and then it all climaxes on the last day with God saw it was very good. And all that repetition doesn't just show us how good God is, but it is meant to have this effect that when we get into chapter 2, it sticks out to us when God says, oh, but this is not good. What's not good? It is not good, God says, that man should be alone. God had made man, but man lived in isolation, and that was not good. And remember, this was before sin had entered the world. This was before Satan had slithered into the garden. This was pre-fall, and yet it was a real problem. Adam needed a friend. Listen to this insight from Tim Keller uh, talking is on an article he wrote on friendship. He wrote, Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends is the one ache that is not the result of sin. This is one ache that is part of his perfection. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy paradise without friends. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy our joy without human friends. Adam had, get this, a perfect quiet time every day, 24 hours. He never had a dry one, and yet he needed friends. Adam needed friends. He had this holy ache inside of him to have someone else in his life. And this was a reflection of his being made in the image of God, who is three in one, a Trinitarian community from forever in the past. And because we are made in the image of God, we all ache for friendship. All of us. In fact, I'm convinced that this is one of the most undiagnosed aches or problems in our life. People think they have a problem with this or that or this or the other thing, and so often they come to me and they share these with me, and I feel like I'm saying to them, you know what you need? A friend. You do not know how much grace God intends to give you through the gift of friendship. It is deep and it is wide. In fact, one of my favorite quotes on friendship is by J.C. Ryle. He says that friendship halves your troubles and doubles your joys. Halves your troubles, doubles your joys. We all ache for 
for friendship. And even if you think, no, no, I, I really don't. I'm not made that way. I don't really need friends. Well, I'm saying you're living in denial because God made you this way. You were made for friendship. You cannot deny your creator. This is how he designed you. This is how he created you. And this is how he, ex- he designed you to experience life, to enjoy its joys. They are to be shared with friends. Every person aches for friendship. God made us this way. In fact, if you've seen the movie Frozen, this is one of the lessons Elsa had to learn, right? She wanted a, a kingdom of isolation where it looks like I'm the queen. That didn't work so well for her, right? Because she needed to learn that no, you don't need to be by yourself, you need to trust other people and become vulnerable with them. And that is the reality. We all need people in our lives, friends in our lives. The first Adam was made for friendship and the second Adam, Jesus, was a man of friendship as well. Jesus was the holiest man that ever lived and he worked to cultivate Friendship. He invited his friends to come on down the road with me, walk these dusty roads, engage in these lengthy conversations with me, share meals with me. He wants those disciples, listen, no longer do I call you servants, I have called you friends. When his close companion Lazarus died, Jesus wept. And in his most distressing moment, When before the cross he went into Gethsemane to pray, he didn't retreat to pray alone. He didn't want to be alone. He took his closest friends with him. Even Jesus didn't want to be alone in his trial because Jesus was fully human and we need friends. Jesus was a man of friendship and he was a man who gave his life to save his friends. He taught greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We sang it this morning. Richard exhorted exhorted us towards it. This is the meaning of Jesus' death, that he would give his life if we would receive him for his friends, as a friend. He is the friend of sinners. He gladly owned that label. Jesus' death was the greatest act of love and those who have received his love then go and love like him. We go and we make friends with sinners. We go and we take their interest and make them more significant than uh, than our own. We go and we lay down our lives for our friends. See, I want us to see this, that Jesus saved us as an act of friendship. I mean, that is an incredible thought. It's not just a goodwill gesture. Oh yeah, I'm this great God and you are some pitiable people. I guess I'll show my mercy on you a little bit here and I can save you so you'll think I'm great. Like, no, that's just high in the pie, wrong thinking. God wants you down to earth. He loves you as a friend. Let that blow your mind. Get as earthy in your friendship thinking as you can. That's what God wants to have, a relationship with you like that. God saved us as an act of friendship and then he is forming the church to not be a crowd, to not just be a community of like-minded theologically people, but to be a community of friends, a fellowship of friendship. He loved us as a friend and now we love his friends as our own. And through all this, what Jesus is doing is he is restoring us to what we lost at the fall, friendship with God and friendship with one another. The two aches of our heart. And so I say all that by way of a long introduction to bring us into our text in Philippians today because here we have 
an inspiring and an instructive text on friendship. I think we need to relearn friendship a lot in our day. We think we know friends, but really we've watered down the idea, right? Like we've got bajillions of friends online, but they're not really friends. We've lost what friendship really means and looks like. And so it's good to have our mind renewed and we wanna see what the friendship looked like here. So we're gonna be focused on verses seven and eight, but I wanna read them in context. So we'll, we'll read verses three through eight. So this is Philippians 1, God's holy and authoritative word. Let's read it. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless the preaching and the believing of his word. Uh, this passage is, as I said, inspiring and instructive when it comes to the gift of friendship. And so I want us to see here at least three marks of a true friend, three marks of a true friend by which we can evaluate ourselves and our friendships. And the first mark of a true friend is shared enthusiasm. Shared enthusiasm. In his insightful book, one of his insightful books, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says that friendships are always about something. They're always about something. Here's the larger quote. He says, friendships must be about something. If it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Now what, white mice? I, I like what? Like C.S., I mean, wait, a, you, you lose me there, right? Like you, you ruined a good quote, Lewis. What were you thinking? White mice, who? Who has an enthusiasm for white mice? <laughs> I just think it's the oddest thing. All right, sorry, I just got distracted by that every time I read it. Okay, so the point is, you gotta have it about something enthusiastic for something like dominoes or dogs. That would have made more sense. But anyway, white mice. He says, those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. So friendship has to be about something. There has to be a shared interest, a shared passion. It can be board games, it can be football, it can be movies, it can be running, it can be cars. Lewis says it can be white mice for whoever that encompasses. The point is though, true friends have an enthusiasm for something that they share. It can be an interest, or it can also be a destination, he says, right? A common goal. Uh, I think that's why a lot of us make dear friends in school or in college, because we're trying to get through this thing together. We're trying to get towards graduation or a career together. And so we find ourselves making friends with people on the same path as us. It might be a classmate or a roommate. It could be a, a lifting buddy or a coworker, maybe a mom who's in a, a, a se season similar to yours. Uh, friends are often, are often our fellow travelers. But the point is, is a shared enthusiasm is a key mark and a key ingredient to a good friendship. And it's that very thing that we see here in the first half of verse seven. So look again with me at verse seven. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Well, why do you hold them in your heart, Paul? He says, well, for you are all partakers with me of grace. 
The Philippians were partakers with Paul of grace. That's what they shared in common more than anything else. This is what they were passionate about. This is what they had an enthusiasm on together. It was the grace of God in their life. It was the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friendship is always about something. And for Christians, if there's anything else, it's this, that we have Jesus Christ together. This is what we share. It's always the gospel of his grace. We share an enthusiasm for Christ and we enthusiastically pursue Christ's likeness. Jesus is at the center of our friendship. Jesus is the goal of our friendship and that's what makes Jesus the, the glue of our friendship. There might be other things that we share in common, seasons of life, struggles, interest, experiences, sure, but what really unites us, what binds us together in all our differences and with all our diversity is that we are friends in Christ. We have the gospel of the grace of God together. And so this begs the question though, are you passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, is Jesus your passion? Do you get enthusiastic about Christ? Do you love to talk about him? Do you love to sing his praises? Do you love to share with him with other people? Because listen, here's what it is. Community group, for our guests, community groups, the small group ministry we have here, it's where we do most of our fellowship and our friendship and all that. But here's the deal. Community group is just gonna be another meeting if you don't have passion for Jesus Christ. It's gonna be another thing you're supposed to do as a Christian where you go and you listen to people and you share something like that and it's just following the meetings and doing what I'm supposed to be doing unless, unless you're passionate about Jesus because then it becomes an opportunity to get together with your friends and talk about what Jesus is doing in your life and find out about what Jesus is doing in their life and to worship Jesus together and to grow and learn about Jesus together and then it becomes exciting. Then it becomes something we get to do. You know, sometimes I hear Christians complain that their relationships with other Christians seems superficial and they don't know why. Well, what they fail to see usually is that the problem isn't their relationships as much as it is their relationship with God. The sad truth is our relationships feel superficial because they are superficial. That's why they feel that way. So how do you fix that? Get more passionate about Jesus Christ. Get more passionate about Jesus Christ and you'll have some substance to talk about and to fellowship over. You know, Martin Luther once said, God's friendship is more precious than that of the whole world. Is that how you feel about friendship with God? More precious than the whole world. If there's one thing I get out of this life, it's I get a relationship with God. Most often, listen, most often we are intended to enjoy our friendship with God in the same way we enjoy every other conversation or every other friendship. It's through conversation. We, we try to make this too hard. Listen, like friends talk to each other. That's what friends do. And it's no different between us and God, right? Except in our relationship with God, this is how it works. He speaks to us through his scripture and we speak to him through prayer. It's all just a big conversation. We talk about them as spiritual disciplines, right? You gotta be in the word and you got to be praying and and that's good and fine because there is a discipline to it, but really it's all relational. 
It's about us hearing from God and then us talking with him. Jonathan Edwards talked about it like this. He said, by conversation, not only is friendship maintained and nourished, but the felicity or the joy of friendship is tasted and enjoyed. It's through conversation, it's through sharing with one another. And he says, conversation between God and mankind in this world is maintained by God's word on his part and by prayer on ours. So in his word, God shares his heart with us, and through prayer, we share our heart with God. So, how's your Bible reading going? How deep is it? Maybe a better question is, how personal is it? How friendly is it? Do you open it like a textbook that your teacher assigned, or do you open it like a letter that your friend has sent you? There's a world of difference between the two. When you want to hear from your friend, and you wanna hear about his hearts, his dreams, his disappointments, and you wanna open up your heart and talk about your dreams and your disappointments and let him speak into him with grace and truth. Often we look at prayer like it's more like it's a 911 call, right? Like something we dial in the case of emergency and that's about it. When actually prayer is where we converse with God and we open up with him. He says pray continually. That's not like this hard command. That's an invitation to talk all the time with him. Friendship must be about something. It must be about a shared enthusiasm. And for Christians, we can have the deepest friendships in the world with the most diverse group of people in the world because we are all partakers of grace. We share God in common. And he is the heart and the soul of our friendship. Only we have to actually be enthusiastic about him, about his gospel, about his grace. You can't drum this stuff up. It's just gotta be real to you. So evaluate your friendship with God. How vibrant is it? How real is it? Let me just give you one more little verse about this. I love that passage in Revelation 3 where, church, or where Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. You know, we always think about that passage as if it were a, a salvation uh, passage, an offer of salvation, but it's not. This was written to a church. This was written to people who knew Jesus. They just weren't fellowshipping with him anymore. They weren't relating to him anymore. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am at the door of your heart every day, knocking to come in and sup with you. I just want to be with you. And I belabor the point today because I'm trying to get some of you to hear Jesus knocking at your door. It's only you that keeps him out. Jesus does not withdraw from us. We withdraw from him. But every day he knocks. And every day he'll come in. If we'll let him. The key to a good and healthy friendship with others is first a good and healthy friendship with God. If you start at the root, the fruit will come. All right, mark number two. Mark number two of a good friend, a true friend, is sacrificial commitment. Sacrificial commitment. A true friend never gives up on you. We all know this. Friends don't give up on each other. They don't quit on each other. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. True friendship 
requires sacrificial commitment. And this is a mark we see again in Paul's friendship with the Philippians. Uh, Look again at verse seven with me. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So there's that sacrificial commitment. He says, you are with me first in my imprisonment. So remember, Paul was writing this while he was in chains for the gospel. He's in trouble. Uh, He doesn't know if he's gonna get out of this thing alive or not. And to make matters worse, if you read a little further in chapter one, there are these people that are reviling him, uh, these other people who claim to be Christians. Uh, They're saying that God put Paul in prison, basically to sideline him. They took him out of the game, put him on the bench because Paul had done something wrong. Paul had failed him. So Paul's in prison. Paul's being maligned. But the Philippians, they're his faithful friends. They're compassionate towards Paul. Uh, he talks later in the, in the epistle about how they sent him a gift, a financial support. They also sent him a friend, Epaphrodites, to go and be with him and to spend time with him. I mean, think about the cost of that to them. Not only did they give a financial gift, but they essentially supported a missionary to just go and be a friend to Paul while he was in prison. These were committed, sacrificial friends. He says, you were with me in my imprisonment, and he says, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So he's saying, basically, you're committed to me and you're committed to the gospel. You're working to alleviate my suffering even as you're willing to suffer yourself. So these were sacrificial commitments the Philippians freely made, wonderfully made. And that is the substance, that is the sum, that's gotta be a part of your friendship. All right, well, what's a sermon on friendship preached by Jace Hudson without a quote from Lord of the Rings? Here we go. (laughs) Great. (laughs) I love Lord of the Rings for many reasons. One of them is because the greatest treasure in Middle Earth is friendship. And I think that's so much like this world that God has made. Frodo was a rich hobbit, he had good friends, and for the journey that he was on, where he had to take the ring, the ring of power, to the fires of Mordor, you know, it was a dangerous journey, it was fraught with it, he didn't know if he was gonna survive or not, he thought he probably would. So, part of the story is he keeps trying to escape his friends and go off on his own, right? And they they keep crashing the party and saying, no, we're with you through thick and thin, like, we're here for you, right? Like, you can't get rid of us. And so, I love the exchange that happens at the beginning, or in the opening of the first book, where this, this first time this happens, Frodo tries to sneak away away from his friends uh, and they stop him and he bitterly resists and says, you can't go with me, it's too dangerous and, and so this is what they explain to him. They say, listen, you can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end and you can trust us to keep any secrets of yours closer than you yourself keep it but you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like hounds. (laughs) True friendship is not fleeting, it's faithful. Even when the going gets tough, especially when the going gets tough. And listen, that's a point for us to, to, to note as well. Adversity is the test of friendship. Adversity is the test of friendship. We learn a lot about what kind of friends we have when we don't have anything to give. 
And then the reverse is also true. We learn what kind of friends we are when others don't have anything to give. When someone has nothing more to share than burdens, trials, and problems, only a true friend's gonna endure. So evaluate yourself here today. Do you go to community group more for what you can get out of it or what you can give into it? And do you come to church to be served or to serve? I'm not saying it's wrong to want to get anything out of community group. I'm not saying it's wrong to want to be served here at church. But I am saying this. The mindset of Jesus Christ is to put others before ourselves, to put others' interests more significant than our own. And so we will, if we have the mind of Christ, come into community group and come into church thinking more about how others might be served than we are looking about how we can be served. That is the mind of Christ. That is the mindset of a friend. And then let me go even deeper with you. Let me just tell you this. This is where it gets really icy and dicey. Sacrificial commitment is not tested the most in bearing one another's burdens. It's tested more, especially in our culture, in, I'd say, these two ways. The first is when others are vulnerable with us. The first is when others are vulnerable with us and they open up and they share about some sin in their life or they share about some struggle that they have, they share about something awful that they did and they are embarrassed by it and they are opening up to you a part of your heart and you have a choice in that moment to either pull back or move in. And I know what the excuse is, right? Like, I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing. Listen, I've said the wrong thing a hundred bajillion times as a pastor. That's not the point. The point is you don't pull back. You press in, even if you say the wrong thing. Because it makes a world of the difference to the person who just opened up to you. When people are vulnerable and honest with us, when they entrust themselves to us, we need to press in and commit ourselves to them. But then here's the second place where it's really hard to practice sacrificial commitment. It's this, when we are offended by each other. When we disappoint each other. When we sin against each other. Probably the greatest expression of sacrificial commitment is the extension of forgiveness. It says, you owe me a debt because you just hurt me, but I'm holding on to you. I'm not letting you go. I'll eat the debt in love. I'll take it in myself and I forgive you. That's sacrificial commitment. Is there anyone you need to forgive to strengthen a friendship? So mark number two is sacrificial commitment. We move finally to mark number three, holy affection, holy affection. C.S. Lewis, I'll quote him again because he writes such great things about friendship. He was a man who, was, who had friends and was a friend and so he got it well. He once reflected on the joy of being with his closest friends and he described it as being enfolded in, and in, 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 I said this at first service too, I messed it all up. I, in first service I said enfolded in the infection of friend, of the infection of friend, and I couldn't get it out. It's not an infection. It's not a disease. What, it's the wrong word. Affection is the word I'm going for. You're enfolded in an affection. There it is. Man, I'll just read his quote here and move on with this. <laughs> These are the golden sessions, he says. This is, this is the gold moments of friendship. When our slippers are on, 
I love that. Our feet spread out toward the blaze and our drinks at our elbows. He was a hobbit, just like his friend Tolkien. When the whole world and something beyond, beyond the world opens itself to our minds as we talk, at the same time, an affection mellowed by the years enfolds us. Life, natural life, has no better gift to give. True friends find themselves enfolded in a holy affection. <laughs> I'm just really moved because I'm just thinking, I, I don't think a lot of us experience that. And it's why we really feel lonely because God made us to feel that. And so we have friends, but we don't have that. But God wants that for you. And if you want that, I want you to know that's a holy desire. And God wants that for you too. And it's what we see in verse eight here. This deep feeling of friendship that gets expressed so meaningfully, so movingly. He says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. There's so much heart in this. Paul's just unrestrained in his affection. He loves these people and he expresses it in strong terms. Paul says, for God is my witness. He says, listen, I know you can't see my heart. I know you can't see my affection. So I call God as my witness. He can see my heart. He can tell you how I yearn for you. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Now this, this term affection here is a really interesting term. The ESV translates it uh, very politely. It's, it, he translates it affection. But the King James uh, kind of gets closer to what the actual word is. King James translates it bowels. But you didn't see that one coming, did you? The bowels, the Greek word is, it basically refers to the soft organs in the core of your body. And it's an interesting term. It's actually the strongest language, strongest word in the Greek language to express that kind of compassionate, that moving love that we have towards other people. So what they, you know, so if you want to express that kind of love, you would say, you know, I love you with all my bowels. Guys, you can put that in your Valentine's cards as well. I love you with all my bowels, dear. Why would they say it like that? This is just a weird way to say it. Well, one lexicon helps us to understand. It said it has to do with the inner parts of your body. That's where your emotions are felt. And if you think about it, that's actually pretty true, right? Because you're, you can get excited and your lungs can react. You get short of breath, right? That happens sometimes. Or you get really excited about it and your heart starts to beat faster. Or you get really anxious or worked up about something and your stomach tightens. Like you actually feel your emotions in your body. And that's something of what Paul is saying here. He says, listen, everything inside of me aches for you. I think about you and my heart beats faster. I think about you and I feel it in my stomach. He has so much affection, he pours out to these Philippians, he expresses it. This holy affection, it can engulf Christians. People who really love each other, we feel it deep down, and then we express it to each other. And I know this kind of expression, you know, can, it can 
feel weird for us uh, as Americans, but the Bible is just full of this kind of expression. You know, Paul weeps when he has to leave his friends in Ephesus, we read about in Acts 20. David, with his fr- or said of his friend Jonathan, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Uh, when Joseph was reconciled to his brothers, we're told he kissed them and he fell upon his necks and wept with them. These deep expressions of affection, they feel uncomfortable to us today, but listen, I'm telling you, we need to recover them in the church. This kind of stoic, individualistic, strong, I'm an American, you know what that is? That's weakness, that's not strength. We need to get ourselves calibrated to the Bible and to God who expresses his love freely. This is true humanity. This is strength of heart. This is what God desires for us. Deep emotions strongly expressed and felt. We have a problem if we are too proud and too private to express our affections freely to our friends. And that is a problem that must be repented of, but here's an even bigger one. Too often, if we're honest, the problem is we don't actually feel affections for others. Right, like if we peel it back and we get honest with each other, the problem is, is listen, Jace, like, I just don't actually feel much about other people. If you read books on friendships, and I have, they'll tell you the enemies of friendships are things like busyness, social media, entertainment. And I think that's true. I think they are the enemies of friendship. Often they keep us on the shallow side of relationships. For me, busyness is a particular problem. I just get too busy to slow down and have unhurried time with people. But you know, I think our problem goes deeper than busyness, social media, and entertainment. It goes deeper than the poor example our parents maybe gave us. It goes deeper than being hurt by friends in our past. The reason we don't love people the way we should is because there's no room for them in our heart. And there's no room for them in our heart because it's filled with love for self. That's the problem. We're too self-referential. We're too occupied with ourselves. That's the hard truth of it. And more than making adjustments to our life or our schedule or our entertainment habits or anything like that, what we need to do to grow in affections for others is we need to repent of our affection for ourselves. We love ourselves too much. We need to ask God to help us empty ourselves of ourselves to take up our cross and deny ourselves. This is basic discipleship. Empty yourself of yourself and you will find your life, Jesus promises. This is the mindset of Christ, Paul says in Philippians 2, that you consider not only your own needs but the needs of others as well, counting them more significant than yourselves. This is the mind of Christ. Repent of your selfishness And then you know what you'll get? You'll get something supernatural in its place. Something that comes from God. It's what Paul had at the end of verse eight. He says, I have the affections of Christ Jesus. 
Listen, your problem's not your schedule and your social media and your entertainment habits. The problem that you have is that you're too selfish. I'm too selfish, we are too selfish, and what we need is to be supernaturally filled with the affections of Christ Jesus. His own affections for others coming through us. I love you with the affection of Jesus in me. His love for you just comes through me. So listen, there's nothing practical I want to give you to try to help you grow in affections for other people than this. Repent. Repent of you. Repent of me. Repent of us. Get out of yourself. Go deeper into the Lord and his love and in his love for other people. And you will find love welling up inside of you. Listen, think about this from another way. Think about this from another perspective. People don't love you well. You want them to love you better. Do you want them to love you better because their pastor said, here's a few tips on how to be a better lover? To schedule time in your calendar and play some board games and, like is that how you want people to love you? Or do you want them to love you with something that comes from their heart? Something real that God has put in them? That's the love we want here. The affection of Christ Jesus for one another. It's a supernatural work that only happens when we get ourselves out of the way. So in conclusion, having looked at three marks of a true friend, I want to return to what I said earlier. Jesus saved us as an act of friendship. He is the true friend. And he forms and calls this church to be a community of friends. He loved us as friends, and now we love his friends as our own friends. And that's what Jesus is building here. He is restoring to us what we lost through the fall, friendship with God and friendship with each other, the fulfillment of the two perfect aches we have. Friendship is a gift. It's hard work, but it is so worth it. So I'll close going back to that quote. I, one of my favorite quotes on, on friendship that I quoted in half earlier, and I'll give you the full version now. It's by J.C. Ryle. I don't have it on the overhead. You just gotta listen. He said, this world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joy. Amen to that. May God forge deep friendships here among us where we have each other's troubles and double each other's joys in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, it's an incredible thought to think that you have humbled yourself, yourself to make yourself a friend to sinners. said that you used to walk with Adam in the cool of the day. That's what you made us for. And that's what you still want with us and you stand at the door and you knock every day saying, let me in, I come to sup with you.
So God, I pray that you would help us lead us deeper into friendship with you. It's such a gift. Jesus, you said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. There's no greater life we have, no greater life we can find than in a friendship with you. And I pray, though, that that friendship wouldn't just be contained to, it can't be contained. That's a friendship that cannot be contained, but just naturally starts to bear fruit in our relationship with other people. Um, It's part of the transformation you do in us, Lord. And so I pray that the happy fruit of our growing friendship with you would be deeper friendships with one another. Lord, make this a place where people come in and they don't just say, wow, this is a friendly church, but they take a double look at us and they say, oh my, these people are really friends. (laughs) They're engulfed in affection here. Let me in on that. I want what they've got. Give me this Jesus. May that be our testimony here. We pray this in Jesus' name.